Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. A combative hearing on the Hill, Attorney General Merrick Garland defending the Justice Department as House Republicans pressed him for answers about the Hunter Biden investigation. President Biden meeting with leaders of Israel and Brazil amid tensions with both countries. What leaders talk about as they try to find common ground. A big new climate initiative from the Biden administration. The Climate Corps program will train Americans for jobs in the renewable energy industry. How much is illegal immigration costing us? Lawmakers debate the issue and share some staggering figures. there a two-tiered justice system. Attorney General Merrick Garland doesn't think so. He defended the DOJ at a hearing today. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards gets reactions from lawmakers. At a hearing Wednesday, a special committee led by Republicans set out to get answers to questions about the weaponization of the Department of Justice, questions about investigations of former President Trump, Hunter Biden and Catholic churches. Attorney General Merrick Garland defending the department and maintaining that all investigations are conducted fairly and equally. With liberty and Chairman Jim Jordan expressing concerns about the fairness of the Hunter Biden investigation. Four and a half years, the Department of Justice has been investigating Mr. Biden, an investigation run by David Weiss, an investigation that limited the number of witnesses agents could interview, an investigation that prohibited agents from referring to the president as the, quote, big guy in any of the interviews they did get to do. He accused the DOJ of protecting Hunter Biden, but attacking former President Trump. Look at the classified documents case. Spring and early summer of last year, the Department of Justice asked President Trump to turn over boxes of documents. He does just that. In the process, President Trump finds 38 additional documents. He tells the Department of Justice, very next day the FBI comes to his home and he turns them over. Everything they asked him to do, he did. And then what's the Justice Department do? August 8th, last year, they raid President Trump's home. Other Republican lawmakers had similar questions. They see the DOJ, of course, aggressively prosecuting President Biden's chief political rival, Mr. Trump, while at the same time, they see slow walking and special treatment given to the president's son. Why has the Justice Department dragged this investigation out for so long? Mr. Weiss was a longtime career prosecutor. President Trump appointed him as the... You're not answering the question. Is that standard procedure? Should it take that long to make such a simple determination? Garland maintained that Trump-appointed AG David Weiss had full authority to investigate Hunter Biden and that he had not questioned Weiss on how that was being done. Meanwhile, Democrat lawmakers are saying this. Mr. Jordan, who has uh, evaded the subpoena for 500 days, has, and it has the nerve to have this committee hearing uh, whose sole purpose is to defend Donald Trump and to cast aspersions on the investigation of Donald Trump by the Justice Department. Representative Jeff Van Drew called attention to agents investigating Catholic churches. Yes the no. idea that someone with my family background would discriminate against any religion is so outrageous, Mr. so absurd. Mr. Attorney General, it was your FBI question. that did this. Some Democrat lawmakers applauded Garland and the DOJ. Well, there is no doubt that the uh, Department of Justice under General Garland has the ultimate of integrity. Uh, there is no 
a political bias, a bias toward uh, anyone because of their power or their wealth. At the end of the day, if you hear him very carefully, what he's saying is nobody in this country is above the law. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Turning now to the war in Ukraine, speaking before the UN Security Council today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky urged the organization to strip Russia of its veto power. Therefore, the UN General Assembly should be given a real power to overcome the veto. This will be the first necessary step. If it is impossible to stop the war because all efforts are vetoed by the aggressor, Zelensky added that he won't accept any peace deal unless it requires Russia's complete withdrawal from Ukrainian territory. He went on to accuse the UN of a willingness to, quote, compromise with killers. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was not present for Zelensky's speech, and Zelensky left the meeting before Lavrov spoke later. The Ukrainian president is slated to be on Capitol Hill tomorrow morning. He will be meeting with the entire Senate. Some common ground amid differences. President Biden met with Israel's prime minister as the two vowed to work toward greater peace in the Middle East. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. President Biden says U.S. commitment to Israel remains ironclad despite the differences he has with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Because even where we have some differences, my commitment to Israel, as you know, is ironclad. I, uh, I think without Israel, there's not a Jew in the world that's secure. Biden previously criticized Netanyahu's right-wing government as extremist. But today, the two leaders meeting on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly in New York try to find common ground, including by vowing to work together toward normalizing relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. This is uh, something within our reach. By working together, we can confront those forces that threaten that future, none more so than Iran. Netanyahu says such an agreement will help to end conflict among Israel, Arab states and the Palestinians. And the Biden administration says such a mega deal would help to stabilize the Middle East. We can make history together. together. Yeah. Biden today also met with Brazilian President Lula, who just recently criticized the Biden administration over its sanctions targeting Cuba and military aid sent to Ukraine. But Biden and Lula today vowed to work together on promoting workers' rights. They'll build the infrastructure we need to keep our economy strong. So we have to empower them as well. And as Biden's U.N. trip draws to an end, Biden says he looks forward to hosting Netanyahu later this year here at the White House. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. The Biden administration is announcing a major climate initiative. It will be the first of its kind in the nation to train young Americans for jobs in the renewable energy industry. The White House on Wednesday announced the creation of American Climate Corps, it's a workforce initiative that will pay 20,000 young Americans to get training for jobs in the climate sector. The new Corps will support a wide range of jobs, including restoring coastal wetlands, forest management to help fight wildfires, and building out renewable energy projects. No prior experience is required to apply for most programs. The White House said in a statement that the aims include, quote, conserving our land and waters, bolstering community resilience, advancing environmental justice, deploying clean energy, implementing energy-efficient technologies, and tackling climate change. Initially proposed as part of President Biden's Build Back Better agenda, the program was stripped out of the Inflation Reduction Act. 
five states have already launched their own Climate Corps programs. An additional five also announced new programs on Wednesday. The Secretary General of the United Nations on the same day called for more action on fossil fuels. During a speech at the UN Climate Ambition Summit in New York, he asked nations to end subsidies for fossil fuels. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Meanwhile, presidential hopeful and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis unveiled his energy agenda. Here he is speaking in Midland, Texas earlier today. As your president, I will restore our freedom to fuel. I will ensure that the United States of America is the dominant energy producer in the entire world. I will ensure that this country does not have to rely on hostile nations for its energy needs ever again. We will lift the Biden EV mandates and uh, other uh, standards. We will eliminate subsidies uh, for EVs, and we will support Americans' right to drive the cars they want. In short, we will save the traditional American automobile. DeSantis also said he'll focus on reducing gas prices and energy costs, promising to greenlight oil and gas drilling, stop inflation, and achieve $2 gas in 2025. He accused Biden and the Democrats of putting a radical ideological agenda before Americans' economic interests and added that there are better ways to defend against natural disasters and climate events. What price are we paying for the record-breaking levels of illegal immigration? That's the question Congress tackled today. Lawmakers debated the financial impacts of current immigration policies. NTD's Jason Perry has the details. Lawmakers expressed contrasting opinions during the House Committee on Homeland Security's hearing called the financial cost of Mayorkas's open border. On Wednesday, lawmakers examined the cost of the millions of illegal immigrants crossing into the United States. This crisis has cost Texas $5 billion last year, $5 billion this year, 9 to $10 billion next year. Lawmakers also expressed how the issue is impacting citizens. In Brooks County, Texas, Sheriff Benny Martinez has said that county officials took pay cuts in order to afford the cost of burying or cremating illegal aliens found deceased on the U.S. side of the border. Think, think about that. They took a pay cut just to bury the dead found at the border. One of the witnesses shared details about the situation in Yuma, Arizona. We have seen women uh, approaching the border in labor I've witnessed that multiple times to the point where our emergency room and our maternity ward was overrun. Some lawmakers pointed to New York City Eric Adams' recent comments on the immigration crisis, which took center stage at the hearing. Never in my life have I had a problem that I did not see an ending to. I don't see an ending to this. I don't see an ending to this. This issue will destroy New York City. Destroy New York City. Adams recently said New York City is expected to spend about $5 billion this year and $6 billion next year to provide for the immigrants. And a Mississippi congressman tried to put the cost in perspective. So the information you have provided to us says that New York will spend next year almost as much money as the entire state of Mississippi spends to fund our entire state government. 
But Democrats at the hearing said the immigrants are helping with the labor shortage. And Representative Delia Ramirez said one day without immigrants would cause the U.S. economy to collapse. Yet, we want to talk about how much they're costing us. Here's the thing. Work permits, immigration reform, and the adequate visa so that people don't have to come here illegally, these are all solutions that work to make this country the country of American dream, the country of freedom, and the country of the future. Recently, a video went viral that showed migrants riding on Mexican cargo trains heading to the United States. Now that Mexican freight company has temporarily stopped 60 trains because thousands of migrants had been hitching rides to the U.S. border. Jason Perry, NTD News. Over to California, the city of Sacramento is getting sued for failing to clean up homeless encampments. The district attorney and city leaders have been caught in an escalating months-long dispute. NTD's Eileen Eng has the story. Sacramento County District Attorney Tin Ho announced he is suing the city on Tuesday during a news conference in Sacramento. He said the city is seeing a collapse into chaos that he believes reflects the erosion of everyday life. A group of residents and business owners also filed a companion lawsuit against the city. I sent a letter to the city describing incidents where DA employees were threatened and assaulted. I asked for help from the city to get people off the streets and into shelter. The mayor responded by saying, the district attorney and the presiding judge are right. I'm going to fix this problem in two weeks. That was nearly three months ago. The dispute between the district attorney and the city became more complicated when a homeless advocacy group filed a lawsuit earlier this year. A federal judge temporarily banned the city from clearing homeless encampments during extreme heat. That order is now lifted, but the group wants to see it extended. The attorney for the homeless coalition then filed a complaint with the state bar this month saying Ho abused his power by pushing the city to clear encampments when the order was in place. But residents say the city is not providing resources to deal with homelessness. The people in my community have compassion for the unhoused. However, we're not seeing a balance of compassion for the unhoused and the need uh, to preserve public health and safety. The newest lawsuit includes accounts from dozens of city residents living around 14 encampments. Some homeowners say they were threatened with firearms at their front door and had their properties broken into and vandalized, which has driven some from their homes. We've been threatened and yelled at. People trespass on our property during the day and at night while we're sleeping. And people do drugs in our front yard. There's a lot of illegal dumping and trash, multiple pit bulls that are often unleashed, people defecating and urinating in our front yard, people um, discarding needles in our front yard, and people openly using and selling drugs. My son needs to ride his bike to school, but because of this camp, there is no safe route for him to do so. Local business owners said they have spent thousands of dollars to upgrade their security systems after their workers were assaulted by homeless people, while calls to city officials seeking help have gone unanswered. But Mayor Daryl Steinberg said Ho is politicizing the issue. In his statement, he said the city has added 1,200 emergency shelter beds, passed ordinances to protect sidewalks and schools, and has created more affordable housing.
Based on data from the annual point-in-time count, Sacramento County had nearly 9,300 homeless people in 2022. That was up 67 percent from 2019. Roughly three-quarters of the county's homeless population is unsheltered, and the majority of that group are living on the streets. The situation between India and Canada is becoming more tense. India is now telling its citizens to practice utmost caution when traveling to America's neighbor to the north. New Delhi is telling Indians to be cautious because of growing anti-India activities and politically condoned hate crimes in Canada. The Canadian Public Safety Minister responded, saying Canada is just conducting an appropriate criminal investigation. The country is investigating if India was involved in an assassination in June. A leading Sikh activist and Canadian citizen was gunned down in British Columbia. He was working on an unofficial referendum vote, and in DIA has long accused him of links to terrorism. Just this week, both India and Canada expelled diplomats from their respective countries. Up next, hoodie and shorts instead of suit and tie. There's no more dress code for the Senate chamber. Senator John Fetterman today presiding over the Senate for the first time since the rule change in shorts. Counties are hoping to boost voter turnout ahead of the 2024 elections. One registrar of voters hopes for a 100% voter participation. The U.S. Federal Reserve did not raise interest rates today, and markets appear convinced that the Fed is done with rate hikes this year. We'll have details on this and more when we come back. Welcome back. Presiding over the Senate in shorts instead of a suit and tie. Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman today back in the Senate after Majority Leader Chuck Schumer ditched the traditional dress code. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more. No suit for U.S. Senator John Fetterman on Wednesday. The Pennsylvania Senator presided over the Senate for the first time since the Senate ditched its dress code. Earlier this week, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer decided to stop enforcing the dress code, saying senators are able to choose what they wear on the Senate floor. Federman is known for sporting hoodies and shorts. For that reason, he previously had to participate in Senate votes by standing at the door. On Wednesday, Federman commented on his infamous attire, saying, if those in the House stop trying to shut our government down and fully support Ukraine, then I will save democracy by wearing a suit on the Senate floor next week. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis commented on Federman's attire earlier this week. To show up in the United States Senate with that and not have the decency to put on proper attire, I think it's disrespectful to the body. We need to be lifting up our standards in this country, not dumbing down our standards in this country. In response to ditching the dress code, 46 senators sent a letter to Schumer writing, the Senate is a place of honor and tradition. The world watches us on that floor, and we must protect the sanctity of that place at all costs. Allowing casual clothing on the Senate floor disrespects the institution we serve and the American families we represent. As you can see in this clip, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy also criticized the rule change. Watch. Less than 13,000 people have ever given the privilege of being a member of Congress. You're a U.S. Senator for an entire state, but you're going to change all the Senate rules simply so someone can wear gym clothes onto the floor? 
I don't know that they'd let him wear gym clothes into other places of work. And Maine Senator Susan Collins joked Monday that she might wear a bikini on the Senate floor from now on. Federman defended his attire, telling CNN there are much more important kinds of issues we should be addressing instead of how I dress like a bum. The senator also started selling related merchandise, like this piece which reads, I vote in this hoodie. The Senate's dress code was informal before Schumer dismantled it. And staffers of senators still have to wear suits on the Senate floor. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Some say not enough voters use their voice at the ballot box. One registrar of voters told us her dream is 100% turnout. Registration events to boost voter engagement were held nationwide this week. NTD's David Lamb reports from one event at PayPal headquarters in San Jose, California. For National Voters Registration Day, Santa Clara County in California is one of the most diverse counties and they're trying to get more people to register to vote, especially with the presidential primary coming up in March 2024. Along with food, music, and games, the Registrar of Voters Office in Silicon Valley hopes events like these boost voter turnout for the upcoming elections. What we're trying to do is bring awareness year-round at voting and getting registered. And I think everyone needs to have a voice when it comes to who they want to represent them. And that's what voting um, does. It gives them an opportunity to pick the people that are making the decisions for them. So. National Voter Registration Day is a nonpartisan civic holiday celebrating democracy, encouraging citizens to register and vote. Because like in November of 2022, we had only about 55% of our county turnout. So we're wanting to get people registered and out to vote. With a population of 1.8 million, Santa Clara County is one of the larger counties in California. My dream would be to have 100% of turnout and I just will never give that up, you know. The county also wants voters to have the right information on candidates and ballot measures, both on local and state levels. We definitely want to make sure our voters are not just voting. We want to make sure they're educated. Our outreach team does a lot of voter education events. How important do you think it is for people to vote? I mean, it's extremely important. It's the kind of the cornerstone of our democracy, right? It, when you have people vote, you're able to make your voice heard. You're able to get the issues you want uh, pushed to the front. And it's really just our most important part of American democracy. And we really should treasure that. Local elections are held in the coming months, with the presidential primary election to follow early next year. In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Meanwhile, in Iowa, former President Trump making the first stops in what his campaign calls a weeks-long blitz in the state. NTD's Stephanie Cox is there reporting. Steph, how's it going there? What did you see? Yeah, hi, Tiff. Uh, former President Trump spoke at two events here in Iowa today, the last one ending just recently right here in Dubuque. In fact, there were a thousand people or more at the earlier event and possibly more than 2,000 at the event that's just ended here in Dubuque. We saw young people, adults, elderly people of people of all ages, really, presumably taking the day off because it is the middle of the week. So there was some excitement here, obviously, for the former president speaking. And his speeches, his speeches both focused on the achievements of his administration, contrasting them in large part with the Biden administration. And uh, we've had the biggest inflation we've had in 52 years. So that's a lot of years. And it's been a lot of suffering. I see bacon is up 
Six times, six times. Bacon. Who would think, right? So people aren't ordering bacon. Then they say, oh, it came down a little bit. Yeah, they're not ordering it, which is not good for you either, by the way. But they're not ordering it. But so many uh, food products now are going up and through the roof. So we're going to stop it. And uh, I just want to tell you that it's, it's an honor to have been able to control inflation. And it wasn't that, because so much of it has to do with the energy sector. And we were going to be energy. We were actually energy independent. Nobody possible. We're energy independent. Just think of that. We didn't need, for the first time ever, we didn't it's need anybody's energy. We didn't have to guard, didn't have to do anything. We had all, you know, we have more liquid gold under our feet. The former president saying that on day one of his presidency, he would close the border and start drilling, saying also that he would close or minimize the Department of Education and send those funds directly to parents and communities for schooling. Think of it. Who wants an open border? Who wants high taxes? Who wants high interest rates? Who wants not to be able to? Who wants education that's a disaster? We're going to close the Department of Education, move it back to the states. The president saying that he thinks that this election and the nation is on a razor's edge, but he did say that he thinks that this election would be spectacular in his own words. He was imploring Iowans to come out and come to the um, come to the uh, the caucus on January 15th. So back to you, Tiff. Steph, thank you for that update. And it's great to see you again. The U.S. Federal Reserve did not raise interest rates today, but Fed Chair Jerome Powell left the door open for possible increases in the future. The Fed is taking a wait-and-see approach after raising rates to a 22-year high in July. NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with a financial analyst to break down today's Fed decision. And now here with me is Joseph Trevisani, Senior Analyst at FX Street. So it seems like the Federal Reserve kept interest rates steady at this, at this meeting. Um, yes. Do you think they're done or are they uh, due for more hikes? They're just skipping this one. I think the Fed is probably done. Thank you for having me, by the way. I think the Fed is done. I think the biggest problem for the Fed is they can't come out and admit it. And that is one of the things that has come out in the projections. They raised the projection for the end of 2024, even though it's lower than it is now. So I think the Fed is done. They may do one more, but they're not ready to admit it yet. And I think markets are still very leery of a recession, even though some of the odds of that seem to have uh, reduced. So what was the reason for uh, pausing at this meeting? Well, I think the Fed is waiting. Logically, they are waiting for the results of this to take place. There's a long lag from rate policy to actual effects in the market, although not on interest rates, but certainly on inflation. Another reason, of course, is that the inflation rate has dropped dramatically from 9.1% to was then 3.2 and then up to 3.7 in the CPI. So there has been a major reduction in inflation. It doesn't mean inflation isn't a problem, but it means that the Fed has a good reason to pause. You're saying the, the Fed is perhaps done, um, and, but of course they, they wouldn't want to let markets know that. Uh, explain for us why that is. Well, markets will always front run any position that they think is going to happen. Markets, after all, are trading operations, and you make more money by being in front of the wave, by being the first one to move. If the markets, especially the Treasury markets, were convinced that the Fed is done, then they would start buying treasuries, sending the rates down. 
the Fed does not want commercial rates at rates that are based on the Treasury market to come off. It needs those rates more than it really needs the Fed funds rate to keep inflation in check. Right. Uh, and this all comes down to their inflation fight. It's about the rhetoric and, and, uh, and sentiment, right? Absolutely. If in the press conference today, Mr. Powell comes out and says, we're finished, we're not going to raise rates anymore, the reaction would be instantaneous and very strong. Treasuries would be bought up, and since their um, interest rate works inversely to price, Treasury rates would come off. And in fact, they did not. They all went up today. What was uh, Powell's language like? Was it strong or soft? Well, I think he's going to he stayed strong, and he's going to stay strong with the uh, rhetoric, because that's necessary. In other words, if the Fed, that, that increase in the projections for 2024 is, in essence, a warning. If the market starts to move in a direction the Fed doesn't really want it to, the Fed can come out and use its rhetorical devices. The Fed can say something that will send the market into reverse. So that's a warning to the markets. Don't move yet. We are not ready to let up the pressure on inflation. All right. Thank you so much. Once again, Joseph Trevisani. Thank you for having me. Coming up, Attorney General Merrick Garland says he's not the president's lawyer, but a former federal prosecutor says he is Biden's bag man. Find out why. And China is working hard to portray itself as a normal country to American school kids. We'll dive into the how and the why and what can be done about it after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. President Biden met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in New York. He said the U.S. commitment to Israel is ironclad. The Biden administration launched the first-of-its-kind American Climate Corps. It's a workforce training program for jobs in the renewable energy industry. Attorney General Merrick Garland testified before the House Judiciary Committee. House Republicans grilled Garland for allegedly weaponizing the Justice Department's work. The AG defended the DOJ's handling of both the indictment of former President Trump and the investigation of Hunter Biden. For an analysis of the testimony, we spoke with a former federal prosecutor and public defender. Cash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me on again. To begin, Garland is firing back at congressional Republicans, saying in his opening statements today, quote, I am not the president's lawyer, adding, I am not Congress's prosecutor. What's your reaction to his statement here? No, he's just President Biden's bag man. I mean, he can say that he's not <clears throat> Hunter Biden's lawyer or Joe Biden's lawyer, and he can say he's not Congress's lawyer. Those are fake news headlines that CNN and The Washington Post will grab and say, look at this apolitical administer of justice. But what you have to do is look at his testimony coming out today where he continues to lie and stonewall Congress. He has six congressional subpoenas for documents that he still has not provided to Congress. He's in violation of those, which is a felony, contempt of Congress. He's never going to prosecute himself for that. And how about the disinformation he continues 
to give Congress on whether or not people interfered with the investigation into Hunter Biden and whether he participated in it. He just refuses to answer these questions as if he, as if he the attorney general himself, is above the law he's been charged to administer. And, Cash, on that note, when it comes to Hunter Biden, Garland is saying he doesn't recollect if he spoke to the FBI ah. during that time. Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? Uh, don't re I, don't, I don't recollect the answer to that question. But Is it possible that he wouldn't be involved, given it's the president's son? Look. I get that there's a lot of things the attorney general has going on and that come across his desk. But when you speak about the ongoing investigation of the current president of the United States, you can have Joe Biden's memory and you're going to remember that one. And so I don't believe for a second he's not involved, just like we found out that the White House and Joe Biden lied when they said they weren't involved in the Trump prosecution. The White House counsel's office, pursuant to the direction of President Biden, relinquished executive privilege so the DOJ could prosecute Donald Trump. Only one man in America can relinquish that privilege, Joe Biden. And so this theme of lying and covering up, whether you want to call it unlawful activity or corruption, the fact that the attorney general of the United States is totally weaponized, to me, is the most dangerous thing we can see in our system of justice. And, Cash, expanding on that, Kentucky GOP Rep Thomas Massey is saying that Garland actually committed perjury. This was in response to whether or not Garland knew if there were any government assets in the crowd during January 6th. Here's what he said. Now, in that video, that was your answer to a question to me two years ago when I said how many agents or assets of the government were present on January 5th and January 6th and agitating in the crowd to go into the Capitol and how many went into the Capitol. Can you answer that now? I don't know the answer to that question. Oh, last time, you don't know how many there were or there were none? I don't know the answer to either of those questions. If there were any, I don't know how many. You've I don't know whether there are any. I think you may have just perjured yourself that you don't know that there were any. You want to say that again, that you don't know that there were any? I have any? no personal knowledge of this matter. I think what I said the you've, last time. You've had two years to man, find out. And man. today, by the way, that was in reference to Ray Epps. And yesterday, you indicted him. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful coincidence on a misdemeanor? Meanwhile, you're sending grandmas to prison. How serious of an allegation is this? Incredibly. I mean, again, I'm not asking the attorney general to be up to speed on every investigation across America and know where paid informants are going to be and where they're not going to be. But on the January 6th investigation, which he is single-handedly spearheading out of Washington, D.C., him and his FBI don't know that they had dozens of paid informants, not to mention dozens of uh, undercover federal agents, not paid informants, cops, federal agents were in in and around January 6th, and the excuse we got from the FBI and DOJ, if you can believe it, oh, we lost track of them. How is that possible? For me as a former federal prosecutor, when you run informants like we did, you own every single piece of their movement. You direct them where to go. You tell them what to do and what not to do. Now we're to believe that this Department of Justice is so incompetent when it comes to answers about January 6th that they're going to say, we forgot. I mean, Congress really has to do more than just grill these guys. They have to go in there and get the records for the American people, get the subpoenas enforced, and take their money if they don't comply. 
And on that note, what are Republicans likely to do about this? What are the consequences for Garland? The consequences should be simple, contempt of Congress. And you don't need a DOJ to do it. Con Congress has the inherent contempt of Congress powers. We uh, utilize uh, this option, or we exercise the ability to utilize this option. When I ran the Russiagate investigation, we had 17 subpoenas out to a Republican DOJ and FBI director that they then violated, but we pulled them into compliance by taking their money. Congress can either take some of their funding, take Chris Ray's G5 government-funded jet, take Merrick Garland's new fleet of Escalades, or they can use inherent contempt of Congress powers, charge him, arrest him, and have him tried in Congress. I mean, enough is enough already. Kash Patel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Have a great evening. Next, why is China supplying books and teachers to American schools? Experts say there's an ulterior motive. To find out more about what's going on, we spoke with Mike Gonzalez, who testified on this subject to Congress yesterday. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation and the author of BLM, The Making of a New Marxist Revolution. Mike Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Tiffany. It's a pleasure to be on. Right now, lawmakers are raising the alarm and concern that the Chinese Communist Party is actually influencing U.S. K-12 schools. So to begin, how is this even allowed? Well, that's a good question. It shouldn't be allowed. I wrote my first paper on this nine years ago, almost nine years ago. This is done through the Confucius Institute, which operate at the college and university levels, and then uh, through the Confucius classrooms, which operate at K-12. The, uh, the contracts signed between the American entities and the Chinese entity, uh, which is a, a, an office, used to be called Hanban, which reports to the uh, Chinese Ministry of Education, that is to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, they're, they're, very, they're not transparent at all. What we're asking for is for Congress to demand transparency or to outright ban uh, these, these contracts and these, 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 these collaborations. And now, Mike, you were actually part of the hearing and you brought up the example of Hollywood and China's influence and investments there and how Hollywood would sometimes create two versions or just toe the Communist Party's line. So given that, what's at stake here for future generations in terms of the education sector? That's right. I mean, China is not paying for these books and is not sending professors because China wants us to be educated in Mandarin or about China or about China. China is doing this because they want us to think of China, of the People's Republic of China, as a normal country, uh, like we think of France or Chile or Portugal or South Korea, you know, democracies, happy democracies, and not like what China is, which is a dictatorship that puts people in prison, that, that jails Jimmy Lai, who's China's most famous political prisoner, uh, who, who's been thrown at the age of 75 into prison. He was an independent publisher. Uh, and who's in, in solitary confinement. China doesn't want our children or our, our adults to know this. It wants us to think that they're, they're not a, an adversary, they're not a hostile power, they're just a normal country. That's not the case. They would be lying. And Mike, given that, it seems some have pushed back, saying this, especially this hearing about the Chinese Communist Party's influence in education, is actually hurting the Chinese diaspora in the States. With your example of Jimmy Lai, help us understand how this is actually targeting the Chinese Communist Party and not the Chinese people. Yeah, I couldn't understand what the 
the Democrats were saying or their witness, I, it, it was really baffling to me. Uh, I don't speak of a Chinese diaspora. We have Americans. They're Americans of Chinese origin, and they have every, you know, every the right of every American. I myself was born overseas, and I consider myself an American. Uh, this is not, you know, about them. This is about the country that oppresses them before they came here. You know, you talk to Americans born in China, and they were they they're the most vociferous in denouncing the horrible communist dictatorship of China. I just could not. Un- I was dumbfounded that they, the Democrats and that committee made that comparison. We have to get serious about the threat of the PRC, of the People's Republic of China. We have to get serious about the Chinese Communist Party. Um, we cannot have elected American representatives carrying water for the CCP. And now, my speaking of the threat, it seems there are some actions being taken following the hearing. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik co-led legislation titled the Class Act. That's to counter the Chinese Communist Party's influence in the education sector. What would you like to see more of in this regards? Look, normally I don't want the federal government to be involved in educational matters. Uh, they have no role in it. But this is a, na- a matter of national security. This is a matter of a foreign power. Uh, trying to to insinuate itself into the education of our children and of our university students, and in the case of Hollywood, of the of regular Americans, the viewing public. Uh, so I think that there's, there's a role here for Congress. There's a federal role here, very definitely. I like to see a ban and collaboration between U.S. entities, U.S. institutions, and entities uh, that belong to the the, the the Public Security Ministry of China. Which, which does intelligence or to the defense ministry or to any any PRC institutions uh, that, that, that do intelligence or military. Mike Gonzalez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Up next, while bad habits may be harmful, they're often hard to break. We ask the experts for advice on how to overcome negative behaviors. And in the NFL, is Tom Brady considering a return to the New York Jets? Hear what the former NFL great said regarding the rumors when we come back. Welcome back. Many people are plagued by bad habits, behavior patterns like procrastination and overeating, which can negatively impact people's lives. NTD's Emma Shi asked the experts how we can defeat them. Bad habits can permeate people's lives, making them less respectable, less productive, and less happy. These can include procrastination, excessive screen time, overeating, smoking, poor diet, laziness, overspending, and negative self-talk. Bad habits uh, are things that we can feel very fond of, very protective of, because our bad habits are a comfort to us. And that comfort is a temporary comfort. It's not a long-term comfort. The only way to achieve long-term comfort is by bringing our goals to fruition. Psychotherapist Mary Dobson says that people should visualize the joy of successfully reaching their goals. Bad habits are usually things that will impede those goals positive thoughts can give us the willpower to overcome negative behaviors. It also helps to take some physical action toward your goals instead of just thinking about them. First, take the action so that your body can feel what it feels like 
to have executed that goal. And the subconscious mind can witness a person doing the thing that they talked about doing and experience the sensation of what it feels like to have accomplished that goal. That emotional experience is actually what will breed motivation. Immediately taking an excessive amount of action can be tiring and discouraging. It's good to start with baby steps. Starting off with small steps, um, manageable small bite-sized workouts that can fit our needs and they're enjoyable to us. And as time goes on, we can increase the intensity. Life coach Chloe Panta says we can also break up large projects into small bite-sized pieces and do them one at a time. This has worked tremendously for her and her clients, especially with procrastination. We procrastinate not because we're lazy or disorganized. We procrastinate because we're lonely. Because when you do things with other people, you clean up that messy dormitory, that messy office, if you're all going to do it together. Psychologist Mark Goulston is a founding member at Newsweek Expert Forum and the author of Get Out of Your Own Way, Overcoming Self-Defeating Behavior. He says partnering up with others is a good way to break bad habits and form new ones. Emma Shi, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at today in sports history. That's right, Tiff. 50 years ago today, Billie Jean King beat Bobby Riggs in the famous Battle of the Sexes. The co-ed match was seen by 90 million people worldwide, the most ever for tennis, aided in part by Riggs' chauvinistic promotions leading up to the big day. Now Riggs, who was formerly the number one ranked men's player, had boasted no woman could beat him, claiming they lacked emotional stability. Despite his age, 55, he had just recently beat a 30-year-old Margaret Court in what had become known as the Mother's Day Massacre. But King was unfazed by his bravado. The 29-year-old rolled to a straight sets win, striking a victory for women worldwide and earning the $100,000 winner's prize. Now King's being considered for an even bigger award, the Congressional Medal of Honor, in a bill being introduced today. Just a two-thirds vote is needed in both the House and Senate to make it happen. And in NFL news, is Tom Brady coming back? He didn't exactly deny it Monday. The greatest of all time was asked by Jim Gray on Brady's Let's Go podcast whether the Jets had called and if he was considering them. Said Brady, quote, next question, you already know, I love being with you guys on Mondays and I love what we've got going. Now it seems likely the Jets could have reached out to him, but extremely unlikely that one, he comes out of retirement, and two, he does so with the New York Jets, who are the Patriots' biggest rival. Yet he could have said no and chose not to. Now elsewhere in the NFL, free agent running back Kareem Hunt has re-signed with the Cleveland Browns following the season-ending injury to Nick Chubb. Hunt, who played the last four years for the Browns, will likely split the running back duties with Jerome Ford. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, just six baseball games are on, but one featuring the Chicago Cubs, who will start Cy Young candidate Justin Steele. Steele is looking for his league-leading 17th win as he faces the Pittsburgh Pirates at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.